Hey, so if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 11. John 11, turn them on, open them up. Love for you to follow along with me as we jump into probably one of Jesus' most famous miracles. And it's interesting that we're looking at this miracle on Palm Sunday. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus rides into Jerusalem and people sing and say, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And that kicks off, Palm Sunday kicks off Holy Week, which leads to Good Friday where Jesus is crucified, leads to Easter Sunday where he rises again from the dead. And the story that we're going to look at today is intricately connected to these events in the life of Christ. It's the account of Jesus raising to life again a guy named Lazarus. And bringing someone to life again is both amazing and deadly. Here's what I mean. Amazing that if someone's dead and they come alive again and you had a front row seat to see that, I think you'd be amazed, right? You'd be like, whoa. But it's deadly for Jesus because the religious leaders of Jesus' time are so tired of Jesus. They've been ready to get rid of him. They want him to be silenced and shut up. And now he brings this guy to life again. And because he raises someone from the dead, they get so angry that they're like, that's it. That's the last straw. Let's take him out. Deadly. Interesting that Jesus is approached by his friends. This guy named Lazarus His sisters send word to Jesus and say, hey, our brother is dying. He's terminally ill. And Jesus doesn't go right away to help him, but Lazarus dies, the account goes. And Jesus, because he doesn't go rescue him immediately, he causes all kinds of hurt and pain among people. And Jesus then decides he's going to go. He goes to the cemetery to see Lazarus who's in the grave already, and Jesus is like, hey, get rid of that gravestone, let's see the guy. And they're like, no, Jesus, don't, he stinks. And Jesus is like, no. And he calls him by name and says, Lazarus, come forth, come out. And Lazarus, who was dead, is now coming out alive. Interesting. We're going to look at this story together. Before we jump into the actual text, I want to just kind of zoom out for a moment and and talk to you about what's happening at a wider level here in the Gospel of John. So Gospel of John, two interesting things connect with this story that I find fascinating. Maybe you will too. First is before John chapter 11 is John chapter 10, right? And last week we were talking about John chapter 10, how Jesus says he's the good shepherd. The good shepherd knows his sheep and he speaks and knows the name of his sheep And he says and calls the sheep by name, and they listen to him, and they follow him. And in John chapter 10, Jesus says all this stuff about being the good shepherd. And there are people of Jesus' day that are like, Jesus, just prove that you are who you say you are. How can you make these claims? And they don't believe him. And then Jesus in John chapter 11 calls a guy by name. He comes out of a grave alive. That's pretty miraculous. And if you're going to believe that Jesus is who he says he is, this would probably show it, right? Prove that he's somebody special. And yet, he does this in front of people. And there are people, no matter what Jesus says or what Jesus does, they will reject him. They won't believe him. They'll think Jesus is a fraud. And I find it fascinating that those who think Jesus is a fraud, they still want to silence and kill him. I mean, if Jesus isn't someone who can call someone out of a grave and make them alive again, then why are you trying to kill him and silence him? 
Because nobody stays neutral with Jesus. You either believe Jesus is who he says he is and he can speak and bring things to life again, or you reject him as a fraud. But I find it fascinating because even today, if people reject Jesus as a fraud, they want him dead and buried and go away. They want him silenced and they want nothing to do with him. Even now, Jesus is separating people as I speak that those who believe and those who reject, and there's no middle ground. I also find this fascinating. If you read John chapter 11 into John chapter 12, remember I said this is kind of a turning point for the Pharisees. They're so ticked at him. If you read the beginning of John 11, 12 into 12, you find that he raises this guy Lazarus from the dead, and it ticks the Pharisees off so bad that not only do they want to out Jesus, they even want to out Lazarus. They want to kill him too. They're like so fed up with anything having to do with Jesus, anything he touches or he's involved in. They're like, we got to clear the deck of all this stuff. So this moment of Lazarus's life coming back is the moment that actually leads to Jesus's death. Lazarus's death led to Christ's death, but Christ's resurrection leads to Lazarus's resurrection and the resurrection of us all. So interesting to see this and to realize that Jesus, if he is who he says he is, the resurrection and the life and can speak and bring things to life again, man, he's somebody we should be paying attention to. But today, we're not actually going to look at Jesus' divinity and how he had the power to raise someone to life again. We're going to talk about that next week. Today, what I want to do is not talk about the power of supernatural God to bring people to life again, but instead what I want to focus our attention on is the humanity of this story, the pedestrian level of what takes place among people. At the human level, someone who loves and follows Jesus is sick and dying. How does that impact people? And more importantly, how does that impact Jesus? How does Jesus deal with the sickness and death of one of his followers? So let's pick up the account in John chapter 11, verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. What we get from these first sentences is Jesus has a real relationship with these people. We actually read more about this in Luke chapter 10. We have this scene where Jesus goes to Mary and Martha's house for dinner, for lunch or something, appetizers, I don't know. He goes to their house and he starts to speak. He's speaking and Mary is sitting, this one sister is sitting at his feet listening. And Martha's scrambling around the kitchen making chicken fingers. And, and this scene is so interesting because Mary's sitting there listening and Martha's scrambling around and it ticks Martha off enough that she goes to Jesus and says, Mary's not helping. And Jesus is like, would you just chill out? And what John is trying to show us is that Jesus has this relationship, this friendship with these individuals so that when their brother is sick, naturally they're going to send word to Jesus because they know he's powerful. They know he's done miraculous things. 
They're going to say to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. And that word sick in verse 3 isn't like Lazarus has a cold. He's got the sniffles. He's got badly high valley allergies. That's not what it means. It means he's deathly sick and sinking fast. So we have this very human problem. Someone who loves and follows Jesus is deathly sick. And we've all been there, right? We've all experienced this in our lives, maybe personally, maybe with other people. Maybe we've been deathly sick, and we love Jesus, and we follow Jesus. So what do we do? We send word to Jesus. We pray to Jesus and say, Jesus, the one you love is deathly sick, expecting Jesus is going to do something, right? Or maybe it's someone we love and care about. They've got a bad terminal disease, and we send word to Jesus through our prayers. Jesus, the one you love is deathly sick. They're sick. And when we pray that way, when we bring those concerns to Jesus, our expectation is, Jesus, you're strong, you're loving, you're kind. This is our normal response to sickness as humans. Jesus, you're loving, you're strong, you're kind. Someone you love is sick. Do something. Fix it. Solve it. Look how Jesus responds in verse 4. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. This sickness isn't going to lead to death. No, it's for God's glory that God's Son may be glorified through it. From a human side, when you hear someone in your family is deathly sick, and you tell someone, oh man, my, my sister's got cancer, my brother's dying of cancer, if someone in that moment when you share that problem with them goes, don't worry, God's going to be glorified through that, what do you want to do to them? You want to punch him in the face, right? Like, what? My loved one is deathly sick, and you're going to say to me, God's going to be glorified through that. Like, I don't need a sermon right now. Okay, but this is Jesus. He's not a normal person. He's done some amazing miracles. He says he's going to, this isn't going to lead to death, but this is for God's glory. Okay, Jesus says all that, which means he's about to do something great, right? Verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, as soon as he heard he was sick, he ran there as fast as he could and did some miracle over the top of him, right? No. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Wait, what? This guy is terminally ill. He's sinking fast. And Jesus, you say you love him. You say you care about him. You say you want to save him, help him, but you delay? From a human perspective, delaying means Jesus doesn't care, right? Like if Jesus really cared, he would act, he would do something, but why would you delay? Don't you care about our pain? Verse 6, when we heard that Lazarus was sick, Jesus stayed where he was two more days, and then he said to his disciples, let's go up to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back? Verse 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples report, replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there, so that you may believe. 
but let's go to him. I mean, now we got two problems. First, you hear your friend Lazarus is deathly sick. You say something about God's glory, Jesus, and then you delay and you don't help. And now you say Lazarus is dead, and you're like, and I'm glad about it. I'm glad I wasn't there to help. Like, seriously, Jesus? I mean, here's the million-dollar question. Why does Jesus allow those he loves to get sick and die? I mean, don't you want to know the answer for this question? From a human perspective, this makes no sense. You say you love, you say you care, you say you're God, but you allow sickness and you allow death, and actually in this moment you're like, and I'm kind of glad, whatever, he died, and I'm glad I wasn't there. Like, what gives, Jesus? Why are you acting this way? All of us have been to weddings, right? So, so think of a wedding scene for a moment. And you know that moment where the bride and the groom turn towards each other? It's this beautiful bride and this handsome groom, and they're all spiffied up nice. And they hold each other's hands. And before this magic moment of them handing rings to each other, they make these vows to one another that go something like this. I, Juan, take you, Marissa, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. Remember that moment? When a couple looks each other in the eyes and says that to each other, are they thinking about all the worst stuff that could happen in their lives? Or are they thinking about all the happy stuff? I mean, if they really knew the future, would they ever vow that to each other? I mean, can you imagine if Juan was like, I, Juan, take you, Marissa, and I know our life is going to be a train wreck, and I know we're going to be dead broke, and I know you're going to die of Alzheimer's. Like, nobody would ever do that. You see, we want happily ever after, and we sign up with husband and wife for happily ever after. So what does it look like when we sign up to follow Jesus? When you signed up to follow Jesus, did you sign up to say, I believe I will follow you only when the sun is shining and everything's going great in my life, only when I have all my bills paid and all my health needs met? Or does Jesus want us to say richer or poorer, sickness and health? You see, this story, we get to learn that the death of Lazarus is in Jesus' plan. It's a part of his purposes that he allows his friends and those he loves to get sick and to even die, to go through difficult things. He delays comfort. He delays help. And somehow, some way, he allows those who follow him into difficulty, sorrow, even death. And somehow, some way, he says, this is all for your good, and it's all for my glory. I put a quote in your app today by a pastor named Barnhouse, Dr. Barnhouse. I'll, I'll read it to you. It's a quote. It goes like this. If God wants you to trust him, he puts you in a place of difficulty. If God wants you to trust him greatly, he puts you in a place of impossibility. If God wants you to trust him, he puts you in a place of difficulty. If he wants you to trust him greatly, he puts you in a place of impossibility. At a human level, 
we don't like this at all, do we? I mean, we don't have a category for this. We're followers of Christ who love and obey Jesus. Bad things happen to us. We, we don't like this at all. But for God, impossibility is where our ultimate good and His power meet. I mean, this is so important in basic following of Jesus that when we face an impossibility, some situation or circumstance where bad things happen, where evil occurs, where there's sickness or suffering or heartache or pain. We don't like the thought that God could be in that, but in those impossibilities, that's where God shows himself strong. You see, when we decided to follow Jesus, when we said, I will follow you, we can't fix there are moments we can't control, we can't change, we can't amend where Jesus wants us to trust him and our lives don't make sense and where it's chaotic and painful. God's like, in that moment of impossibility for you, are you going to trust me? Because that's where I'm going to show up to show that I am strong. I'm stronger than you. If everything is humans we could control or fix, why would we need God? And that's how we live. But when we come to a point where we realize this is impossible, I can't solve this, I can't fix this, I can't change this, I can't solve this, I can't change me, I can't, that intersection of impossibilities where God shows himself strong to you and he wants to grow you to follow and trust him. Are you facing some impossibility? Some circumstance? some situation, some obstacle? Did you say you would follow Jesus just on the sunny days? Or are you willing to follow in sickness and in health for richer or for poorer? You see, in that spot, when I say I trust you, God, even when I don't understand, even when I'm in pain, even when it's confusing, even when it doesn't look like you're even real, that's where he shows himself strong. Here's what I love about this scene in John 11. Yes, Jesus delays and Lazarus dies. Yes, Jesus knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead and he's going to use this impossibility to grow people's faith. The Bible doesn't put a happy face on this scene. The Bible doesn't whitewash this and make it look all happy fairy tale-ish. Listen to John 11 verse 20. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. Mary stayed home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here... My brother would not have died, but I know even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 28, Martha went back and called her sister aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Verse 32, when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I mean, this is real. This is the sickness and death causes Christians to doubt and feel great pain, right? This isn't scrubbed out of the biblical narrative that this group of people, they're dealing with a terrible situation where someone is deathly sick. They pray to God. They send word to God. Jesus delays. Now he's dead for four days Jesus, if you were here, why didn't you fix it? You said you cared. You said you loved. You said you were for me. You said you were strong. I mean, isn't that what we feel? 
when we face these impossibilities and we send word to God, you say you love me, you say you care, you say you're strong. Why don't you do something? You let these things happen? And it would be easy for Jesus in this moment to be like, listen, ladies, quit your whining. Suck it up. Right? Quit crying. Here's a hanky. Blow your nose. You'd think he might say that. You'd think he might give him a lecture like, listen, ladies, I ain't your cosmic dog, and I don't jump when you say jump, and I don't heal when you say heal. But he doesn't do that. Instead, look what he says. Look what happens in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him? I mean, this is the picture of Jesus entering into the pain and the doubt of those he loves. I mean, he knows the future. He knows what he's about to do. He knows he's going to bring Lazarus back to life. He knows the delay that caused all kinds of pain and questions and doubts. And he sees this scene, and it deeply troubles him. I spent a lot of time with teenagers in my life, and you know when a middle schooler or a high schooler breaks up with their girlfriend or boyfriend, they think the world has ended, and they bawl like babies? Just bawl, right? And as a dad, you know what you do in that moment? Suck it up, son. There's somebody better coming along. You weren't going to marry that whatever anyway, right? I mean, isn't that what you say? No. As a parent, what do you do when your middle schooler or high schooler goes through a breakup? You don't lecture. You weep. You weep with them. You enter into the grief. Even though you might know a future, you might know things better to come, you enter in. So Jesus acknowledges when he sees the situation unfold, the gut-wrenching reality of death, of sickness, of pain, of mourning, of grief. And it says he is troubled deeply in spirit. And when he says that, it's so much broader than just He's sad because someone died. He's sad because someone died. But he's looking at this whole scene from a wide-angle lens and going, he's deeply troubled at this entire scene. He's deeply troubled that there is sickness and death in this world. He's deeply troubled that there is sin and rebellion in this world. He's deeply troubled that there are people that doubt that he cares. He's deeply bothered by the entire scene, and it causes him anguish. It troubles him greatly. Here's what the story teaches us. As followers of Jesus Christ, it's going to be hard. And any preacher, or any writer, any podcast, any video, anything that you see out there that tells you it is not going to be hard to follow Jesus is a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus himself says, you will face difficulty. You will face hardship. You will face sickness. You will face death. There will be days, son or daughter of the king, that you'll be confused. There'll be days you're full of anxiety. 
and fear over what's going on in your family, what's going on among friends. There will be months and seasons where you talk to God and you beg Him to do something. Fix it, God. Change it. Move it. Stop it. And you'll feel like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. You'll feel like he's got his finger in his ears and he ain't paying attention to you. There will be seasons of that in your life. But what we learn from Martha and Mary and Lazarus is God's delay is not God's disinterest. That his delay in answering our prayers is not because he does not care. He cares more than any of us can even imagine. It troubles him so deeply that he sent his one and only son into the middle of the mess to weep with us and clean up the mess and return one day to make it all right. He feels it with us and cares, but he's like a good parent that sees their teenager going through hardship and heartache, and first he weeps with his child. But then he doesn't rush to fix the problem. Imagine if my 14-year-old broke up with his girlfriend and I wept with him, and then I was like, hey, let me go set you up with somebody else and marry you off. That wouldn't solve the problem. No, I love you, I'm going to weep with you, and I'm going to allow you to feel this pain and experience this pain because I want to grow you into a son and daughter maturity and character that will trust me with whatever comes. I have something so much bigger in mind for you. So his delay is not his disinterest in us, but it's his way of growing us and changing us and using us to advance his kingdom in something that's so much bigger. You see, we look at our lives and what is 5 and 10 and 15 and 20 and 30 years seems like an eternity to us. But these are light and momentary trials in comparison to all eternity which goes on forever and ever 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 in every which direction in light of Eternity, he's saying, I love you and I care about you. Will you trust me and walk with me? And if as soon as it gets hard and difficult and you think your prayers are bouncing up against the ceiling, you ditch me, you deny me, you walk away from me. If you say no to all of me, or if you say no to part of me, then you're saying no to all of me. You see, Jesus wants to walk with us for better or for worse in sickness and in health. And forsaking all others, he wants and will be faithful to you as long as you live forever. The question is, will you? Will you follow Jesus for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others? Will you be faithful to Jesus as long as you live? That's what it means to follow him. Would you pray with me? God, you see the pain and the problems going here on here on earth. You see the injustice and the anxiety, the addiction, the brokenness. You see how lost we are 
And you know that we're like sheep, that we wander, that we get fixated on things that aren't good for us, that we're stubborn, that we're quick to take good things from your hand, but as soon as you don't deliver, don't jump at our command, we ditch you and we walk away from you, and yet you're still patient with us, and you're inviting us into a relationship where you promise to be faithful to us forever, and you want us to learn to walk with you on the good days and the bad days, and the days we understand and the days we don't. Would you give us a faithful heart, faithful hands, faithful feet, that when we doubt you, when we don't understand you, when we're confused, when we feel alone, when we mourn, when we cry, that instead of falling away from you, we fall on you and you carry us home. Only you can do that. We fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In your strong and mighty name we pray these things. Amen.